Our first scripture reading is in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. If you're using that blue Bible in front of you, it should be at page 1007. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is saying lots of things that are very important, and as he begins Hebrews pointing out how Jesus is the king, he now lays out how he is also the high priest. He's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron. His covenant is better than the old covenant, better than, better than, better than, all the way through the book of Hebrews. So I want you to listen to how our king and high priest, what he has done for us here in Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And now we turn to 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. Yes, my friends, we will do it. Trust me. Page 345 in that blue Bible. 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. Now remember, chapter 15 and 16 come from somewhere. They come from chapter 13 and 14. Don't forget that context. God breaks out against his people, chapter 13, because they are not listening to him and not doing things his way. Then God breaks out against his enemies, the Philistines, the God opposers and kingdom resistors in chapter 14. But now something new happens, something significant happens. David begins to listen, and all the people of Israel listen to God. And notice how revival and reformation break out. So I'm going to start in chapter 15, verse 1. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. Oh, David's listening. Because God had said in Numbers 4, Numbers 7, the Levites had to carry God's furniture. And that was the problem in chapter 13. It is threw it on a moving cart, like any old furniture. Right? You remember the story? Does anybody remember that story? Okay. So David's listening. That no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for Yahweh had chosen them to carry the ark of Yahweh and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of Yahweh to its place, which he had prepared for it. And then there's a list of several of those who actually were instrumental in bringing the ark up. And then David's words in verse 12. You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves. You and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the place that I prepared for it, because... You did not carry it the first time. Yahweh our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And so the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of Yahweh. 
So David then sets people in place to lead the music at the end of verse 16 to raise sounds of joy. Then comes verse 25. And so David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of Yahweh from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers, and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of Yahweh with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres, And as the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the Ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and and peace offerings before God, And so David creates a feast. He gives out food, verse 2 and 3, for everyone to eat. And then everything breaks out in the sustained festivities that lasts for a day or more. Starting in verse 4 through verse 37. And a sample of the worshipful aspect of the festivities are all of verse 8 through 34, which are portions of the Psalms. Psalm 96, Psalm 106, Psalm 105, and so forth. The little samplings there. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And from this Reformation revival moment, David establishes certain priests to lead in the public worship and singing of God's people to minister regularly, verse 37. And so they did all of this, verse 40, to do all that is written in the law of Yahweh that he commanded Israel even Heman and Jedithan and the rest of those chosen and expressly named gave thanks to Yahweh for his steadfast love endures forever. And then verse 43, the day ends and they all go home. Then all the people departed each to his house and David went home to bless his household. What I have summarized for you, what I have read for you, both in First Chronicles and in Hebrews, it is, my friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, by your word and spirit, burn bright in our hearts, O holy God, that our sin might melt away, and that the blazing warmth of your steadfast love that endures forever would come and make the aroma of Christ more pronounced in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And so if you're visiting and you don't know, on the back of the worship guide is, are the sermon notes. It's an outline with lots of space for you to write notes or doodle or whatever you do when you're listening to sermons. And then there's questions at the end. So that way when you go home and you have roast preach, and when you go home and have a good supper, lunch, you can ask each other questions. So those are all there. My friends, have you noticed the habit of God? It's actually played out here in chapter 15 and 16 
Often we think of the habit of God just because of the way we're, we're, I don't know, with the way that we're programmed or wired as humans, we only think of the negative things. Now God's habit is a break out and burning fire. Right? We think things like that when we think of the habit of God, but that's not the habit of God. That's something he doesn't want to do that he does when he needs to. But the habit of God is actually displayed in chapter 15 and 16. And what is the habit of God? To paraphrase something from Isaiah, God delights, he takes great relish in giving beauty for ashes, for giving the oil of gladness in place of mourning. He finds great pleasure in turning our mourning into dancing and our funeral clothes into gladness. That's what you have if you put together verse chapter 13, 14, and 15, and 16. You can't miss it. The habit of God is that he delights to turn our world around and show us steadfast love and mercy. And so recall that chapter 13 described that time when there was a revival and reformation and it misfired. It was a few months before chapter 15, but it misfired. And remember why. David had good sentiments. That's good. He had majority agreement. Everybody was on board, but we noticed that it was absent, completely absent of God and of God's directions. But now, after the correcting moment and all that happened in chapter 14 that Pastor West told you about last week, now comes chapter 15, and you start seeing some similarities and additions. Once more, David has good sentiment. Once more, he has majority agreement with unified purpose and now God and God's uh, directions are part of it. And what happens? You have revival and reformation of fire. In chapter 13, revival and reformation misfired. Chapter 15 and 16, now you have revival and reformation of fire. I'm excited about preaching chapter 15 and 16, if you didn't know that. So hold on, here we go. So the first two points actually go along with the first two points from chapter 13 that we looked at two weeks ago, which I know everybody remembers intimately and well, right? I got it. But it's the same pattern, starts out chapter 15 and it goes in a new direction. So notice first off, there's a preparation to move the ark. Notice in chapter 15, verse 1, he built houses for himself in the city of David, but he also built and prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. Now, that's extremely important because that tent is not the tabernacle where you're supposed to go meet God and worship. What's happening is that David is slowly moving the tabernacle to Jerusalem because his intention, as all the rest of 1 Chronicles will show, His intention is to one day have a temple built for God in Jerusalem. So all that furnishings, those furnishings must come to Jerusalem eventually. So he builds this tent. But notice that's part of the preparation. The rest of the preparation shows that David learned the lesson from chapter 13 and 14. What happens? Verse 2, David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. That's exactly what God had said back in Numbers 4 and Numbers 7. You will not haul my furniture around like any common household furniture in a moving van. Only certain people will pick it up, slide poles through rings on the side of the furniture, and they will pick up the furniture on these poles two or three on each side, and that's how they will carry my furnishings from place to place. 
God had said that, David ignored that, the Levites ignored that in chapter 13, now they're listening. No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for, the, for Yahweh had chosen them to carry the ark of Yahweh and to minister before him. In fact, at the end of verse 15, it's very pronounced. They did all this as Moses had commanded according to the word of Yahweh. And notice David's own words, David's own words to the Levites. There's no blame shifting here. He owns his own fault in it. He says, starting in verse 12, you are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, Yahweh our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And the rule here is not some legalistic program. It's a relationship rule. I said that the other day. You know what relationship rules are, right? Every one of you guys, you know what a relationship rule is, right? You know how to approach your wife. You know you don't go buy her a shotgun unless she likes hunting, right? But maybe she likes Snickers bars and Dr. Pepper. That's my wife. If I want to sneak in there and get, you know, get close, I go get Dr. Pepper and Snickers bar. That's the relationship rule, right? Does that make sense? Right? And so we didn't seek him. He wants to be sought by us. He wants to be near us, but we didn't seek him the way he said to come to him. That's the rule, the relationship rule. And then at the end of chapter 16, verse 40, again emphasized to do all that is written in the law of Yahweh that he had commanded Israel. Notice that all of this together is emphasizing for us that there was a wholehearted return to the word of God. And so sentiment and majority agreement, as we saw in chapter 13, is not enough for revival and reformation. It's not enough. There must also be the burning desire to come and conform to God's way and God's word, to desire God and his direction, or as David put it, to seek God according to the rule. Real revival and reformation that is warm and that is aflame is revival and reformation that is under the Word of God. And my friends, that was a significant concept and it still is a significant concept in recognition. It was a significant concept of recognition for God's beleaguered people in the 4th century B.C. as they're coming out from underneath exile and coming back home. And it's a very important concept for us to regain and keep hold of as God's beleaguered people in the 21st century. Good sentiment, great. Majority agreement, wonderful. But all under God and his word. My friends, that's exactly what God looks for. You heard it in the call to worship. Scott was making some references there in the call to worship about Isaiah 66 Verse 1 and 2, where God says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, where's the place that you will build for me, where's the place of my rest, for all these things my hand has made, and all these things exist, but it's on this one that I will look, on him who is humble and contrite in spirit, broken hearted in spirit, who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, on this one will I look. Notice what God doesn't say. On the one who has all the plans in place, who's used all the marketing techniques to create the moment. He doesn't say that. 
On this one I will look. On the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Now, my friends, Augustine had something to say about that. And some years later, John Calvin quoted it and gave his big fat amen. And a few years after that, Jonathan Edwards quoted it and gave his big fat amen. To give you a little genealogy there. It's this. It was a letter he wrote to someone and he said it this way. And I hope you're hearing. Augustine said, quote, To Jesus, I wish you to submit with complete devotion. And to construct no other way for yourself of grasping and holding the truth than the way constructed by him. And this way constructed by Jesus is first humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. And however often you should ask me, I will say, I would say the same, not because there are not other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not precede and accompany and follow, then every good work we do, it does not precede, accompany, or follow every good work we do, then if it is not before us to look upon, if it is not beside us, if humility is not beside us to lean upon, and if humility is not behind us to fence us in, then pride will rip from our hand any good deed we do while we are in the act of taking pleasure in it. First, humility. Second humility, third humility. It's this one I am looking for. The one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. What you see going on in chapter 15 and 16 of 1 Chronicles. So now David has good sentiment and majority agreement and humble submission to God and to his direction. And lo and behold, Reformation, revival, light up. And you see this then as, you, as the move comes with sustained joy. As the move comes with sustained joy. The sustained joy actually begins starting back in verse 16. David intends for the musicians to sing to raise sounds of joy. And then it breaks out clearly in verses 25 through 28. This united majority agreement is a, is a united humility. They're all submitting humbly to the word of God. It's a united humility and it breaks out. It breaks out in joy and rejoicing instead of death and defeat. It breaks out in joy and rejoicing instead of death and defeat. That's how it ended in chapter 13, death and defeat. Here now, this humble submission to God this, with good sentiment and majority agreement all breaks out with joy and rejoicing. So as I said, verse 16, to raise sounds of joy. Then you get to verse 25. And so David and the elders of, the, of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of Yahweh from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And then verse 28, so all Israel, oh, they were all on board. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of Yahweh with shouting, with the sound of the horn, trumpets and cymbals, and loud music on harps and lyres. And so there's great joy. It's a move with joy, but it's a move with sustained joy. 
because it all breaks out into chapter 16. It wasn't a flash in the pan joy, but it's a joy that will end up including feasting and festivities, which I will talk more about in a moment. It's a sustained joy. In fact, you'll notice in verse 26 that it's all by the help of God and because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, they sacrificed, etc. I really appreciate that verse being in there. For a, loads of, loads of, a whole, for a load of reasons, that was four words all jumbled into one, sorry. For a host of reasons, but one of them is, can you imagine being those Levites? Three months earlier, they watched what happened to one of their brothers when, he, when God's lethal holiness broke out. Do you think they just waltzed in? Yeah, we'll carry this ark. No, they probably were like, no, pick him. Pick him. Let him do it. I don't want to do it, right? And so there must have been, and I would imagine, rightly so, must have been some fear. And so God moves in and gives them his help, shows them that he is not going to break out in lethal holiness because they're, they're seeking him according to the rules. So what a very powerful statement. It's very subtle, but it's powerful. God helped the Levites. And so it's a move with sustained joy because God is helping them. And in the midst of this sustained joy, don't miss David. Don't miss David. David the king is dressed as what? A priest. Verse 27. First off, he's wearing a whole linen robe like the other Levites that were carrying the ark. And then he wears over that this ephod, which was a vestment. It was like a waist-length vestment that the high priests and the priests in the tabernacle, the sacrifices were wearing. David is dressed up as and acting as a priest. The king is leading his people in sustained worship as their priest. Now, if you happen to hear a little Jesus in that, score! Think about our New Testament reading from Hebrews chapter 10. How our great king and priest is leading us into the holiest place where the ark would have been. Into the holiest presence of God, the holiest place, and there should be rejoicing. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our Lord, who is king and priest, leads us as David is leading the people here, is leading us with joy, leading us forward with united humility, leading us onward with good sentiment and majority agreement. Where? Into the holiest place. We should be some pretty joyful people. And so the move here in chapter 15 is with sustained joy. But oh, my friends, not everything is hunky-dory, as we used to say in Oklahoma. Did we say hunky-dory anymore? Is that just me? Yeah, thank you, Steve. Not everything is hunky-dory here. Someone is channeling the faithless 
past. And that's verse 29, chapter 15, 29. Someone is channeling the faithless past. It's just a blip almost, but it's there for a reason. The ark, as the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Who was Michael? She was the first wife. She was David's first wife. She was the one given to him by Saul. It was her, his, Saul's daughter given to him. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, and as soon as you hear that phrase, your brain as good Bible students go back to chapter 10, the last two verses of chapter 10. Because you remember Saul. Saul didn't seek the Lord. Saul didn't want the Lord. Saul didn't listen to or inquire from the Lord. Saul wanted the things he wanted his way and the style he wanted it, the way he wanted it on his time. He didn't need the Lord. He didn't ask for the Lord. He didn't want the Lord. And so Michael is the voice here, a momentary blip, the voice of the old regime, which is the voice of unbelief. That old regime, there was no affection for a religion that is powerful, that is filled with joy and love and humble submission to the direction of God. There was no place for it in that old regime. Why? Because there was no love of God for God's sake. In the old regime, in Saul's way, religion, and this goes along with the adult class a little bit today, in Saul's way, religion was just a tool to get the toys and the trinkets, the crown and the clout. Religion was just a tool to get the toys and the trinkets, the crown and the clout. And we have a phrase for that kind of approach to religion. We call it foxhole religion. We call it jailhouse religion. I remember being stationed in Turkey and Gaddafi was across the big pond. That's what we call the Mediterranean, the big pond. And Gaddafi was always flexing his muscles and making threats. So we always were prepared for him to assault us. He'd be sending missiles and we would know there would be, if there were missiles coming, there were also uh, military units outside the fence trying to come in. We were there guarding a nuclear weapons storage area. And so one morning, about four o'clock before the roosters even got up and had their first cup of coffee, the klaxons go off, the sirens go off. It sounded like noon in Oklahoma City. Woo! That meant we were under imminent attack. So we immediately deploy all of our guys out to the different uh, listening posts and all the, the hardened structures around the weapons storage area. And I'm a sergeant at this point. They know I'm a Christian. So now I've got to go from post to post to check on all of my troops to make sure that they are all got all their gear. They're all prepared. They know their mission. And I'm driving around in my little truck wondering when the bombs are going to hit. And as I come up to this one post, this fellow comes running up to me, a guy who I knew never went to church. Never read his Bible, and you know what he asked me? Sarge, Sarge, you got a Bible? You got a spare Bible? Dude, why would you want a Bible? You never read it. I know, I just want to put it right here next to my heart. It'll save me from the bullets. Using religion to get the toys and the trinkets, the crown and the clout. It's a very human thing. Happens all the time. That's the old regime, Saul's way. But David's way, in his way, the true, true religion is everything. Because, to steal a phrase from St. Augustine, 
because it's all about God for God's own sake. Let me say it again. It's all about God for God's own sake. Not what you can get from him. Now, all the things that he gives us, praise the Lord and give thanks for them and celebrate. But in the end, it's all about God for God's own sake. And so here, momentarily, Michael steps in and she is channeling a faithless past. In the words of an old Scottish theologian, Alexander White, those who are deaf, like Michael, those who are deaf always despise those who dance. But notice that the old regime does not have the final word. In fact, it almost has very, I mean, it has very few words. It's only verse 29. And so it doesn't have the, old, the final word because God does as he moves into town. Chapter 16. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. Notice that the ark, which is like a, is a sacramental sign and seal of the very presence of God, is now in the midst of God's people, and it's in a tent. The presence of God has come into the midst of God's people in a tent. Does that sound maybe something you might be slightly familiar with? Something about God tabernacling amongst his people? I see some heads nodding. That's good. It's always good to nod. Think of John 1, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you've heard it a hundred times. That Greek word dwelt is tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. Here's God come to town. Why? Because he loves being with his people. He loves to draw near to us and draw us near to him. You just read from the shorter catechism, who's the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man. And so why is it is, it continues to be God and man and two distinct natures and one person forever. Why did he become man? So he could dwell among us, pitch his tent with us. I don't know, but verse 1 of chapter 16 is all gospel. God delights to be with his people. God has come to town. And notice what happens. Notice how things, how things evolve at this. Very appropriate. They all sit down and eat with God, or in his presence. They eat, sit down and eat with God as he comes to commune and fellowship with his people. There's feasting, verse 2 and 3. And then there's prolonged festivities in verses 4 through 43. God coming to town and they eat. God coming to town and they eat. Oh, how fitting that our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, about to be crucified, for our sins, and three days later to rise for our justification, that he actually gave us a feast, a meal. And the meal is all about what? That the righteous one gave himself for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18. The 
righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. It's all about the presence of God, God drawing near. How fitting that our Lord Jesus gave us a feast to revel in the presence of God. His steadfast love that endures forever. Why do we Presbyterians turn communion into a funeral? Oh, praise the Lord. It's a celebration, feast, and festival. Why? Because God, out of His steadfast love that endures forever, draws near. The righteous one gave Himself for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. How fitting that Jesus also gave us a feast about in the same way. So as you look at chapter 16, just you can look over it. We've actually read more of it than you know because it was part of our reading of the law. It was part of our confession of sin and part of our assurance of pardon. But as you look at chapter 16, you will notice that it is also filled with joy from one end to the other. There's singing and there's music and so forth. Dear friends, I can say this unashamedly, that there is a fitting place for exuberant joy in humbly revived Reformation worship. Now don't get me wrong, there is a fitting place for lamentation. Right? Not everything is happy. You know what I'm saying? There's a propriety of us coming in with our tears and broken hearts to come in, not to avoid God's worship, but to come in and lay our burdens down to the one whose steadfast love endures forever. There's a propriety to lamentate, lamenting. But also, dear friends, there's a great propriety to exuberant, for exuberant joy and humbly revived Reformation worship. You know, around the time that this was being written, Nehemiah, who uh, some years before had just come back to Jerusalem, he found Jerusalem all decimated and destroyed. And within a year... He rebuilt Jerusalem by the help of God. Those of you who were in the evening series that I did, Rebuilding After a Hot Mess, will remember some of this. And Nehemiah comes and they they rebuild Jerusalem and then they start to have um, worship again, really intense worship. And so Ezra gets up and he reads the law for a quarter of the day. And it breaks out in... Uh, some renewal. They start to go, well, what does God say? What have we been, not been doing that we should do? And then they find out, oh, there was a festival we haven't been doing. It's called the Feast of Succoth or Booths. It's a seven-day festival. We haven't been doing that. Well, let's do it. So Feast of Booths, you go out and get the tree limbs and everything, create these little shacks, and you live in them because they're supposed to remind you of the 40 years of wilderness wandering. And so they do it. And it's interesting that it starts this revival. And the way you know it's a revival that's God-given is because of chapter 12, verse 43. Chapter 12 of Nehemiah, verse 43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced with great joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice. The Lord had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. Here's my favorite line. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. It was not a quiet Presbyterian service, let me just tell you. And what's significant about it is that the far away people that heard the joy of Jerusalem were the enemies of God's people. 
That was Tobiah, Sanballat, Geshem the Arab, all those people who had tried to sabotage this whole project of returning to God and restoring the worship. They had tried to destroy it and stop it. And so you must imagine the worship, the singing, the rejoicing would have been inspiring for those who love God and it would have been salt in the wounds of those who despise Him. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. There is a place for exuberant joy in humbly revived Reformation worship. Paul hints at that in Romans 14, verse 17, when he says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There is a propriety for exuberant joy and humbly revived Reformation worship. Oh, my friends, this revival and Reformation that's now aflame shapes the rest of First Chronicles from chapter 17 through 29. It's all working out the implications and applications. The rest of First Chronicles is working out the implications and applications of verse 15 and 16. Before we end, Two things. Remember that the God of chapter 13 is also the God of chapter 14. He broke out against David and the people because they didn't seek him according to the rule. He breaks out chapter 14 against the kingdom resistors and God opposers. Well, the God of chapter 13 is the God of chapter 14 is the God of chapter 15 and 16. In chapter 13, you tremble with David before Yahweh's lethal holiness. In chapter 14, you give thanks at Yahweh's lavish generosity. In chapter 15 and 16, you cheer with Yahweh's joyous largesse. And why is that? Because they had come humbly submitting to him and to his word. Dear friends, here's the 2020 principle. Get your glasses on. Second Chronicles 2020. Believe. Okay, come on. Play with me here. Come on. You guys got a U on your report cards in kindergarten, didn't you? <laughs> Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe as prophets, and you will succeed. This is the only way we're going to make it forward through the fog of war and through whatever's ahead of us. It's going to be so confusing down the road. It's going to be so much fog and mayhem. The only way through is to always rely upon the Lord. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe His prophets and you will succeed. Coming to Him with humble submission to Him and to His direction. And that's what we should remember. The God of chapter 13 is a God of 14, is a God of 15 and 16. That's great. Here's the second thing. My friends, isn't this the way of God? He delights to be near His people. He revels in intimate fellowship with us. And He will do whatever it takes to bring us back into full-fledged flaming fellowship with Him. He will do whatever it takes. Chapters 13 and 14 are the essential part of God's design to get David and Israel to chapter 15 and 16. Let me say it again. 
chapter 13 and 14, are an intimate part of God's design to get David and Israel to chapter 15 and 16. Let me put it to you a different way. First comes discipline, chapter 13. A father who loves his children is going to discipline them. First comes discipline, chapter 13. Which then results in what? Godly grief producing repentance, the rest of chapter 13 and 14. And lo and behold, 15 and 16, joyful, peaceable fruits of righteousness. My friends, this is all about 2 Chronicles 7.14. You now know exactly what 2 Chronicles 7.14 is all talking about. God's promise. If my people who are called by my, by my name like Israel, or like David and Israel in chapter 15 and 16, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves like David and Israel in chapter 15 and 16, and seek my face like David and Israel in chapter 15 and 16, and pray like David and Israel did in chapter 15 and 16, and turn from their wicked way as they did in chapter 15 and 16, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal the land, heal the kingdom. You now know what 2 Chronicles 7, 14 is all about. It's about God's kingdom and it offers us so much promise. Never forget it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this story being here for us. May we have ears to hear it, hearts to receive it, and a readiness to walk forward in it. Lord, we come to you with humble submission, hearing, wanting you for your own sake, and wanting your directions, wanting to seek you according to to the rule, as David said. Thank you that that offer, that door, that opening is there. Thank you that you delight to be with us, that your steadfast love endures forever, that you revel in showing mercy. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when we have acted like thorough atheists and skeptics and spurned you, thinking, no, God can't be merciful to me. I'm more sinful than anybody else. Forgive us for being egotistical. Help us to come to you always in humility. First, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. Because you've said, this is the one I seek. He is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And Thank you for your son, Jesus, who has tabernacled amongst us to show us that you delight to be with us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.